it's so arbitrary to only work 40 hours a week, you know? So you might as well just work 80 hours a week. If you work 80 hours a week and you work smarter, then you're probably going to double or, or triple your productivity. And then in 10 years' time, you can do what someone who takes 30 years' time to do. And then you're done. You're good. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What up, party people? It's your boy, Hot Balls, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's delicious episode coming from hot Austin, Texas, I've got the blogger FinancialSamurai.com. Yes, he's Asian for all you racists out there. So this guy, I love his material on personal finance, and I had to share it with you. His background was that he did finance in New York for 13 years and then lost 50% overnight. And you're like, well, why would I want to learn from that guy? He sucks. No, but he was able to come back. He's written about all the things he's able to do, and he is now retired at 40. Some of the things we cover in the episode are, number one, why he thinks San Francisco real estate is super cheap and what he does about it. Number two, how he actually was able to retire by 40 and how long his business has taken him for him to be successful. Three, the one skill that everyone should have. Yes, I've heard these cheesy BuzzFeed titles, but this skill is really good. Before we begin, I've got one quick request. Can you please leave a review about the show? You can say whatever you like. Noah's too bald. He's too skinny, too Jewish. I don't really care, but I love reading your feedback. I love improving. So if you're on iTunes or podcast or Stitcher, Grindr, whatever it is, just go take one quick second on your phone. Come on, do it. Did you do it? Yeah, you, there you did. And just leave a quick review. Whatever it is, I would really appreciate it. All right. Enjoy the show. How do you think it'll impact you having that many more millionaires in this stuff? Well, I think it's interesting because I'm really bullish on real estate in San Francisco. We're like the cheapest international city, one of the cheapest international cities in the world. If you look at prices in like London, Paris, Hong Kong, Singapore, Mumbai, we're like, we're so cheap, even like compared to Vancouver, where there's not even a single company I can name that's paying six figures to anybody. We're cheaper than Vancouver, yet we have way more companies paying way more dollars. So I'm just kind of bullish. I think in 10, 20, 30 years, real estate will be much higher. Unfortunately, the city is going to get a little too crowded. So that's why I kind of moved out west. So it's just much more chill. It's hard to leave San Francisco. It's really hard. I mean, the food is so good. There's so many opportunities. You know, the irony is, so Hawaii is cheaper on real estate, but, you know, there's no jobs. You can get a job as a barista or, you know, serving cold stone ice cream, but you'll make like 10 bucks an hour. Whereas property price is only like 30% cheaper out there. But here, just the consulting opportunities, the job opportunities, the business opportunities, they're just like endless. So like so many times people look at San Francisco and say it's so expensive in a vacuum. But if you look at the income opportunities, it's just unbelievable. That's interesting because a lot of people would just default to say San Francisco's got expensive real estate. Yeah, I mean, it's expensive if you don't look at the income, but everything is rational, you know. It's not going to be that price unless someone can afford it. You know, there's all these kids, you know, graduate from college and they make a hundred grand right out of school. And then they have their stock option packages as well. So I, maybe I'm just delusional, but I'm a landlord and I look at the numbers that these younger folks kind of submit in terms of their finances and they're very large. And it's not just their own numbers that are really large. It's their parents. Their parents have massive bank accounts. It's always bank of mom and dad behind their income. When someone applies to live at one of your places, what's expected nowadays? I feel like SF's harder than Harvard. But it's on the buying side. When people are buying, people don't talk about it, but so much of people buying like a $1.5 million place at 26 is because of their parents. What else have you noticed about that? I just noticed it's ubiquitous. 
our parents are the wealthiest generation in the history of mankind because the stock market's at a record high and real estate's at a record high, right? So there's going to be a massive generational wealth transfer. You just don't have to really work as hard anymore. You just have all this inheritance coming. And that's why there's all this like entitlement and all that stuff, instant gratification, people taking two-year gap breaks, just kind of the way the world is. How has it affected how you live or do your finances? Uh, it doesn't affect me. I just try to look at those trends and build assets that will play on those trends. You asked me about how does it affect my finances. It just only affects the way I look at where to allocate capital. How has that changed with SF growing and, and being more successful and more millionaires there? I mean, just be the picks and shovel seller, right? Own real estate, own rental properties. It's kind of like the easiest no-brainer way to like take advantage. It's a little too hard, like angel investing and all that stuff. Have you tried any of that? Yeah. I just wrote a post called, just say no to angel investing. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the story behind that? Bottom line is, we just don't have an edge. If the VC returns are like getting your money back, most of them, after 10 years, then you know what chance does everybody else have, right? Where do you think your edge comes from? I don't have an edge. That was my point. I just have blind luck, hope and faith. <laughs> That's your uh, investment strategy? How did you get an advantage in real estate or in what you're doing now? I just love real estate. I've been looking at real estate ever since probably 99. I just think it's just almost dummy proof because it's just a play on inflation and inflation and the Fed and taxes. Those are things you just can't really fight. So you just want to have an asset that will inflate with inflation. And if you can get some leverage, then it's pretty good over the long term. It's just kind of like a war of attrition where he or she who hangs on the longest generally has the most. And he's just kind of like Warren Buffett. He just buys and holds forever, right? And then I was in the finance industry, right? For 13 years, I feel like I have a decent grasp on the stock market. Anything crazy from what you've seen by people applying for your real estate stuff? Did you see people that were making like half a mil a year renting one of your places? Or I was just curious to think more about anything wild from them. Yeah, I mean, there's like a 28-year-old Google guy who he, went, he graduated from MIT. He made 400000 from Google. And, you know, the place is only renting for like 3200 So he can afford it. Everybody's making, seems like bank. Anybody who can pay these prices are making a decent income. Yeah, that's pretty wild. My parents have a house in San Jose where I'm from. And a similar story with just these Google people, dual income, making three, 400K combined, renting a place. Right. I mean, it's almost like a requirement. The dual income has really hurt the affordability of America. You know, like before the 70s, one spouse would work, one would stay at home, but now everybody wants to work and kill themselves. As a result, asset prices like real estate just go up. And so if you don't have dual income to buy and for down payment, and you don't have, frankly, triple income with your bank of mom and dad, it's, it gets kind of hard. So what are, what are kids supposed to do? What should I tell my young cousins to do? <laughs> I would say it's so arbitrary to only work 40 hours a week, you know? So you might as well just work 80 hours a week. If you work 80 hours a week and you work smarter, then you're probably going to double or, or triple your productivity. And then in 10 years' time, you can do what someone who takes 30 years' time to do. And then you're done. You're good. Can you expand on that a bit more? Yeah. So let's say you work, and that's 100% of your income. And then you get back at, let's say, 7 p.m., have dinner, maybe from 10 p.m. till 1 a.m. You're like working on your side hustle, your website, your business, while in the comfort of your own home. And you got healthcare, and you got like a nice steady job, and then you work on that for two to three years, and then suddenly it starts making some income, and you reinvest that income in your business, 
You invest in income-producing assets like rental property, dividend stocks, all that. So you build all these little income engines. And then sooner or later, you're going to be able to be almost like replicating, hopefully, your income, your day job income. So then you have optionality to kind of do whatever you want. What do you think most people are doing incorrectly about this, though, today? I think most people aren't able to forecast their misery. <laughs> like I think a lot of people, you know, like they graduate and they're like, I love my job. It's awesome. Or they get together with a girl or a boy and they're like, I love her. I love him. And then, you know, like they break up five years later and, or maybe one year later and they're like, what was I thinking? And it's the same thing with a job. You love your job. You love your life until you no longer love your job or whatever you do. But then by that time, let's say it's 10 years from now, you didn't really aggressively save and invest. And then you're kind of at a loss because you don't have any options. So the key is to really forecast you know, your life 10 years from now, knowing that you're not going to be as interested as you are now and to plan ahead. So instead of just always living in the moment, it's just like, good things aren't going to last forever. Let's just do stuff to gain some optionality. What do you think most people could do today just to get something started? I think everybody needs to brand themselves online. So instead of letting LinkedIn and Facebook get rich off you, because they're already rich, right? You'd probably just want to brand yourself online to get rich off yourself. Believe in yourself, have ownership in yourself. So that's really kind of the key. If you have an online presence, you know, you can brand yourself however you want. It's just a law of attraction where you just attract people for the things that you like to do and talk about. And you stick with that long enough, you build your brand, you build your presence, things that you cannot foresee, it just starts coming to you. It's kind of crazy. What's come to you? So it's all relative. So I write about personal finance on my site. One guy picked up a post called Scraping By on $500,000 a Year. It was an interesting post that I wrote like a year and a half ago, and it started going crazy on the internet, right? It was a Twitter moment, a lot of interviews, a lot of traffic, a lot more revenue. And then someone from Yahoo Finance reached out and said, hey, can I republish some of your posts? So for a normal listener who doesn't write, it's like, ah, whatever, you get republished. But actually, for me, that's a really big deal, because if Yahoo Finance, which is the largest finance site in the world, republishes your post, you know, you just get a lot more visibility and traffic and link backs and so forth. So stuff like that, you know, I would never anticipate that. I never expected, but that just came. And then just all these other types of corporate consulting opportunities come about that you just have no idea. One thing you got me wondering, how long did it take you to finally start seeing some results from your blog? I think I always want something to happen instantly. And then every time I talk to someone who's gotten to some level of success, they say, okay, yeah, it took X amount of time. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, good. Thanks for the reminder. So I started in July 2009 during the financial crisis. I was getting blown up left and right. And I just needed some kind of outlet, right? Like some people drink, some people smoke. I was just like, okay, I'm going to write. You drank, smoke, and wrote. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was writing while drinking and smoking. <laughs> Which ones were your biggest losses? All my real estate assets, you know, because they're levered, right? So you're like your REITs, all your direct stocks, everything like that was taken down? Yeah. I mean, S&P 500 was down 50%. If you're leveraged five to one in the real estate market and you're down 10%, you're down 50% as well, right? And everybody was getting fired in the financial services industry. So I was like, oh, let's go start a site. Maybe I got more time on my hands. So it took about two years before it started making like a livable income stream in San Francisco, right? Like over 50, 60 grand, two, two and a half years. And where did that money come from? Just from advertising. And back then, like in 2009, 2010, like selling links was pretty popular. You'd sell a text link, you'd sell 
sponsored posts, banner ads, all that stuff. And then Google changed that algorithm so it's no longer allowed or looked up upon. But it was cool. It was the fall of 2011, right? So two and a half years after I started my site, I was in Santorini, Greece, and I was just hiking around for three hours. And I got to the top of the crater. It was like amazing 78 degree day. And I was tired. So I was like, oh, give me a, one of those Mythos beers. It was like 10 bucks. I was like, okay, just give me one because I can't afford more. And I was like, just nursing my beer. It was me and another couple, right? Maybe they're on their honeymoon. And then back then, it was really a surprise to have Wi-Fi anywhere. So there was Wi-Fi at this bar and I had my iPhone. And then I got a message from a um, client, old client. He's like, hey, and he's based in London. He's like, hey, I'd like to advertise on your site. And I was like, okay, cool. And he's like, how about 1200 bucks if you put this link up on your site for one year? And I was like, oh, really? 1200 bucks? That's sweet. I was like, okay, send me the code. And you know, I was just typing away. And so I put up the code on my site. I showed it to him. And then he sent me like 1200 bucks like through PayPal like within 30 minutes. And I was like, oh, yeah, sweet. And I was like, give me another beer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was like the epiphany moment in the fall of 2011. Where I was like, oh, maybe there's life after finance. I won't starve. How did you get the initial traction and people reading your stuff? So I was totally into personal finance. So I was a fan of personal finance blogs before I started one. And so I would basically just comment and interact with as many personal finance sites as possible, like literally a couple hundred. And after about a year of commenting and just sharing stuff, kind of people take notice. And so when you start your own site, kind of already know. And then, you know, you just comment and leave back your own site link. And it's just a sooner or later kind of phenomenon. And so from my perspective, you know, I'm a finance guy writing about finance. So it's kind of unique because most people who write about finance aren't finance people, ironically. They're just kind of sharing their debt journey or I just kind of put myself out there. I wrote about stuff from a really deep kind of perspective or just different perspective. And it just kind of took hold. And so you just kind of write until you get that one break. That one break might be, oh, a larger site allows you to guest post. That's one break. Or maybe a large media publication like the LA Times picks up one of your posts. And that was another break. And then so when you get these breaks, you just kind of take advantage and you just build upon it. But it's a long, long journey. So you've got to really like it. So I would say like if anybody can be dedicated and write two to four times a week for three years, I'm pretty sure they can make a livable income stream. I love that. It's like going to school for me. If you put in four years and you follow this plan, you'll get this outcome. And there's not really as much of that for starting your own business or to get certain things outside of school. And so the more that we can have like a blueprint with that outcome. I mean, I definitely think there is a blueprint that will significantly increase your chances of making a livable income stream online. There definitely is a blueprint. Obviously, everybody's miles vary a little bit, but two to four times a week without fail, three years I will be shocked if you're not making at least a couple thousand a month, if not 3,000 a month. So, right, what's the livable income stream in America? The per capita GDP is like 42,000. Household income is like 53,000. So, you, you need to make like 3,500 a month. I would be shocked if someone could not make that after three years. How different is your philosophy? Like, what is your financial philosophy? Like, what separates Sam's style versus any other personal finance you know, person out there? I have several philosophies. Like one is never fail due to a lack of effort because effort requires no skill. So a lot of people fear that they're not really intelligent or they don't have any special skills that they're not going to try. But the greatest thing about trying hard is you don't need any of that stuff. You just need to try hard. And then the other philosophy is really trying to make sure that there's no rewind button. 
So you're either going to try hard and do it right, and you're going to look back and you say, yes, that was awesome, or you're going to look back and have a lot of regret. So there's really a regret minimization framework that I'm always kind of cognizant where I just, it's okay to fail, but it's not okay to fail because you didn't try hard enough. I mean, I definitely have the philosophy of trying to build more wealth because that's unlimited upside and it's actually really fun. There's only a certain amount of frugality and riding your bike that'll help you with your net worth. But I think that's why Mr. Money Mustache is really popular because it's much easier to save and to stop spending like an idiot, right? It's much harder to learn how to build multiple income streams, to build a business, to figure out your taxes. It's much harder. And so I think the common way is to take the easy route, right? Quit your job instead of negotiating a severance so you can set for the next one to five years, for example. So I think in general, society likes easy. And I think as a business model, he's got a great business model where he's talking about frugality. Whereas my business model is harder. It's like dumber. It's about really trying to think about ways to create more value. And so I'll lose a lot of people on the way. That's interesting. I mean, where do you stand for? So number one is more about effort. I guess I was trying to understand more of like your asset allocation or how you think about people should be going about their personal finances. I mean, I really think at the end of the day, it's just an optimization of happiness. You know, money is just a tool for happiness. That's it. Freedom and happiness. So in a nutshell, I would say that's what I stand for. Freedom and happiness. Would you have gone and, and not done as much work in the finance industry and try to start your blog sooner? I would have, but I was like stupid and lazy, you know? Like I remember my dad telling me in 2006, like, oh, you start a site, you like to write, and you could earn some money. And I was like, nah, forget it. I was like in business school at the time, part-time. So I was like getting my ass kicked while I work and, you know, studying and doing these study groups for like another 20 hours a week. So I was like dying. So only after 2006, I started considering it. And then only after the final cr- financial crisis, I was like, oh, I got time to do it now. You know, a lot of people need crisis to like make a change. Otherwise, nothing happens. That is such a good point. A friend of mine calls it the shock doctrine. Oh, yeah. And he he related it to his company where he thought people were too comfortable. So he fired some people. Uh-huh. There's actually a theory you can look online called shock doctrine where it you know, shocks the system and hopefully rebuilds to be a stronger system. Mm. Speaking of your dad, how do your parents' financial philosophies differ from yours? And how have you changed over time or not? They don't differ from mine at all. I mean, they were super influential. Like every time we'd go out to eat, he would look down on, upon me for ordering any kind of drink. He would say, how about water with a lemon? <laughs> you know? So ever since then, I was like, yeah. I understood that drinks is the highest margin business of any restaurant. He always drove really old cars. He always wore his clothes from 20 plus years ago. And he still has that stuff from 40 plus years ago now. And he's just like super frugal. And so with my mom, my mom was just always very frugal, but she was also like the woman who would be willing to spend for convenience. And so that was a balance. So without them, I don't think I would have been as frugal and as focused. Did your parents encourage you, hey, put the money into real estate and income generating things? I remember my dad sitting down with me when I was 14, like just going through the newspaper with the stock pickers and stuff like that. And I thought that was really cool. So that was like my first taste of, oh, stock market and all that. I started getting really into it in college. And so I would definitely credit my dad for introducing me to investing. That's so interesting. I feel like more kids need that. And we don't really provide that. You know, you're Asian, I'm Jewish. That's by default in our childhood. (laughs) But I don't think most other cultures or groups do that as a key part. I was wondering if you still do stocks after you had that huge 30% net worth loss. Yeah, I still asset allocate. I mean, I have a decent stock portfolio. But I have totally toned down my stock picking. 
and realize after a while it's just a fruitless endeavor. And the key is to just build up that big nut. So you got a big nut, right? You mean in stocks or index funds or just in the cash? In stocks, like just index funds, right? And so if you have a big nut, let's say you have 5 million in stocks. And if you just return 5%, that's 250 grand. That's all you need. I mean, that's more than probably what most people need, right? There's no reason to try to risk a big nut, try to make 20% or 30% because you could easily lose 20 or 30% as well. One thing that you, you guys are talking about, I was like, well, why don't you buy more houses? It seems like that's something that you've been bullish on. And, and I'm not knocking you at all. I mean, you have, I think three or four, but when, from what I read, I was like, well, why doesn't he just go out and buy a shit ton more? I mean, I actually put an offer last week on all cash offer on a house and I lost. I put another offer in yesterday and I lost. Holy shit. Really? Is that crazy out there? I'm trying to game the system in a spray and pray method where you can just fill out a DocuSign offer form within three minutes and just click, 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 click to sign your name. And then you just send out these offers all day long. So there's a lot of offers, but it's also much easier to make offers now. The idea is to really try to take advantage of kind of like a disconnect in the matrix. How do you decide which ones to make an offer for or not? Oh, you just kind of look at comps, price per square foot. You look at the property in terms of expandability. It's all about expansion when you buy like property. It's a lot like location, value, income generation. But I like expansion properties because you can build for like a really high quality build for let's say $500 a square foot. So let's say you build 1,000 square feet for 500000 But if the property is selling for $1,000 a square foot, you have instant 100% profits, right? So that's kind of like the easy way to look at real estate investing. How much can you build and how much can you sell? So the key is to have good people to do work for you. And that's why all these contractors and all that are, you know, high demand. One thing that I wonder with real estate for yourself and for myself is how do you decide how much time you should be spending on that versus growing your existing business? It's a good question because I, uh, I wrote a post about it called uh, Don't Neglect Your Most Valuable Assets. Real estate is like 40% of my net worth, maybe 30 to 40. And what I realized was that, shit, I haven't been doing anything with it. I've just been earning income from the rent. I mean, the ideal is you spend a little as time as possible and have the highest ROI possible. But a good framework is to look at your net worth, split it up into percentages of what each asset stands for, and then split out your time, how much you're spending on each asset. So if you're way below, let's say you're only spending 10% of your time on an asset that's worth 40% of your wealth, then you should probably adjust higher and vice versa. I love that. I've never thought of that before. Yeah. So the funny thing is, is like everybody talks about, oh, you can make 8 to 9% in the stock market, 4 to 5% in the bond market, 8 to 15% in the real estate market, which is great. But look at your business, right? Your business growth has been so much greater than 15% a year, right? It's just crushing it. I know for my business, if I try harder, I can grow my business by more than 15% as well. So really, although my business might be less than my net worth, although my business, let's say, might be 30% of my net worth, I'm spending like 50 to 60% of my time, maybe 70% of my time on that business because I see a bigger upside. So you also have to look at which asset has the highest growth opportunity as well in terms of allocating your time. I debate that with real estate where traditionally, I think our parents, that's why I asked about your parents, is that buy property and you let that happen and you get this rental income and, and so forth. But I wonder, I'm like, how much time do I have to put in to actually find a place that can do that? 
you know, I see you mentioned realty shares. I use Pierce Street and I kind of just let other people buy the property and just give them the cash and get the seven to 10% return. Yeah, yeah. So I am totally for that now, like REITs and real estate crowdfunding, because yeah, I do have primary and two rentals and a vacation property. So I'm at my max. I can't deal with it anymore. Like the older I get, the more I want to optimize for simplicity. I don't want to deal with tenants. And I just, I, you know, I posted a tenant horror story. It's just, it's so painful sometimes, although it only lasts a little bit of time. But during that time, it's just so annoying. You know, at the end of the day, I like keeping it simple now. But I also like having a real asset. So if everything goes to hell, like stock market blows up, you know, your business blows up, my business blows up, internet blows up, at least you have a tangible asset like a house, you know, to come home to, to have some utility from. Because at the end of the day, I think wealth is really about freedom and owning real assets. How have you gotten simpler as you've gotten older? Well, simpler is even though I put offers for these properties, I mean, I knew it was like only like a 5% chance I would get them because I was offering below market. But simpler is no longer really, really trying to accumulate more assets, like real assets, but accumulating more totally passive assets. So for example, I invested 260000 this year into Realty Shares Fund, which picks the best properties on their platform for me, hopefully to make an 8 to 15% return. So that's simplification. I've also, you know, been buying bonds after the election. And I think there's an arbitrage opportunity where you can earn a higher return on these municipal bonds, which are tax-free, versus my mortgage. So that's huge. What does that mean? Can you explain that to myself? So a municipal bond is just a bond issued by the government where you can earn income tax-free. And so let's say you can earn a 3% yield tax-free, but your mortgage is only 2.375%. That's awesome. That's positive spread. So it's like living for free. Interesting. So you take the money from the mortgage. Basically, if your mortgage rate is lower than the bond rate. It's kind of one barometer I look at. You know, There's so many things you can kind of look at because everything's relative in finance. That's a good way of putting it. That is interesting how you simplified. One thing as you were going on that, how have you dealt with financial jealousy, especially living in San Francisco, seeing people have more property or more money? Or when I stay in someone else's Airbnb, I'm always like, I should just buy this place. <laughs> you know, it's something I'm, I'm working through. So I was curious your thought on that. I know that there's always going to be like more money out there. So I'm just kind of happy with what I have. I have like my personal goals and then I try to achieve them and then that's it. Like I have friends who are way wealthier than me, like ridiculous, you know, like 10 figure net worth. 10 figures is a billion. What's 100 million? Nine figures. Oh, nine figures. Oh, is that nine figures? Excuse me. Sorry. Nine figures. <laughs> yeah. Nine figures. Multi nine figure net worth. It's so funny because we play tennis all the time. But he can only play like in the early morning because he's got to go to work. <laughs> uh, and he was telling me, I was like, dude, man, if I was the boss, if I was worth what you got, work wouldn't start until 11 a.m. for me, at least for meetings. And I would have never a meeting more than 15 minutes. And he's like, well, you know, I mean, I got to keep up with the Zuckerbergs, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> he doesn't feel good because there's a billionaire, multi-billionaires out there, right? You know, and then he talks about Evan Spiegel from Snapchat, he's younger and he's richer and he's got like a, a supermodel girlfriend, right? So it's just like endless comparisons. I remember like some guys telling these stories long ago, like even if you have a 100 foot yacht, there's another guy with a 110 foot yacht. So someone told me that story probably 20 years ago now when I was in college. So I was like, okay, that's good to know. So I don't really care anymore. I'm competing for freedom. So if you are a billionaire, but you have a thousand shareholders to address and stress and all that, screw that. I mean, that's terrible. Like think about Travis from Uber. I mean, he's probably worth 
four or five billion, six billion, who knows? But that guy is getting, you know, dragged through the mud right now. He's no girlfriend, not married, press hates him, all women hate him, people inside his company have like this all hands on deck where the women are like, What are you doing? Why are you so arrogant? Right? All this stuff. But he's worth six billion, but I wouldn't want to be him. No way. Forget it. I'd like to be him for like maybe one month and then spend like a billion if I could try and then that's it. What do you splurge on now? <laughs> I splurge on property stuff. <laughs> like I splurged on landscaping my backyard, my front yard. I bought a really nice fancy kitchen faucet for my rental and my home. <laughs> Those are my splurges now. So if you are worth one billion, but you're not free, you're way poorer than I am. So that's kind of how I view it. Dude, that is powerful. And freedom to you means? Oh, waking up whenever you want, doing whatever you want, spending time with whoever you want, all the time. Never going anywhere during rush hour traffic. How do you structure your day? Sometimes I wonder where people, if they don't have you know a certain type of job where they have to be in an office and they've started something like yourself, you know, you have your properties, you have investments, you have your own website and business and consulting. Like, how do you structure your time and prioritize it? I really believe in the phrase, conquer the morning, conquer the day. I really believe in that. So I try to get up early, like 5 a.m., and try to get things out in a way, clear the inbox, write a post, whatever, and then try to be finished by 8 a.m., 8, 9 a.m. And so I know that no matter what happens during the day, I've created something productive. So I don't feel any kind of guilt to play tennis at 10 a.m. to 12 noon, go for lunch, brunch, whatever. So conquer the morning, conquer the day. I just think that it's kind of like paying yourself first and, you know, the simple tenant of personal finance. You pay yourself first and you spend on whatever and you're good because it doesn't really matter how much you spend, you already paid yourself. So it's kind of doing the good work early in the morning before the world wakes up and I think everything will be good. And you do it long enough and it's awesome. For someone coming out of college, though, I, I was wondering, do they buy real estate right away? Do they do their brand thing at night? What would you do graduating college now? You know, you're making 60, 75K. A lot of people have this YOLO mentality, which is, you know, they spend and who gives a crap. If the amount of money you're saving each month doesn't hurt, you're not saving enough. So long as you know this and follow this tenant, I think things will be okay for you as a young person. Because again, young people live in the moment and they can't foresee that at age 30, they might hate their lives because they hate their jobs. Are you worried about anything in the economy? It's one of these things where when real estate's good or stocks are good, people are like, yeah, buy stock or buy real estate. <laughs> I'm so worried. <laughs> I'm worried that there's a generation of people who are under 35 who've only seen a bull market. And so everybody's like investment genius. You know, they're retiring early. They're giving advice on you can't lose on this, this, this. They're buying private equity, angel investing. And I think it's going to be really bad when the downturn comes. And it's always the case. It's happened in 99, 2000, it happened in 2008, 2009, and it's probably going to happen again. And so for me, I am actually buying bonds because it's relatively defensive. I'm buying heartland real estate instead of coastal city real estate, and I'm hoarding cash as well. I'm trying to really build a cash, massive cash pile, at least until the winter of this year. That's one thing... I wonder about where I do have a lot in cash, I think about 50 or 60%. And I just like knowing where my money is. And yeah. a lot of times I think with stock market, it just the volatility is just not something I enjoy. But I do wonder when things go bad, people are like, yeah, it's good to have cash. I'm like, well, so what are you hoping to do with it that you can go buy, you know, like you own half of Utah? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hey, uh, Sam, can I come live in uh, your state? <laughs> yeah. 
so I have some goals, right? Everybody should have some goals as to what they would like to purchase in terms of the investment. So I have two goals. One is to buy that Hawaiian dream house close to the beach. How much is that? I mean, that's like, again, this is a dream house, right? So I can any, go anywhere from like three to f- six million, <laughs> you know? And again, it's just a goal. It's fun to have. Dreams are free, so don't hate on that. Have a dream. It's fun. It's free. And then kind of work to see if you can get there. Because that's what makes making money fun, right? Having a purpose. Otherwise, it's just kind of pointless. And then the other goal is maybe to have buy an ocean view property, another one in San Francisco in the next couple of years, right before Uber and Airbnb go public. Because right now we're kind of a soft spot right now. And so trying to buy before the five to 10,000 new multimillionaires come to the market and try to buy a place themselves. This is awesome. Really good getting to know you better. Because I've been loving reading your content. And uh, I was like, oh, I want to share this guy's story. Yeah, well, thanks for chatting. And let's definitely get a beer next time you're here. No, that sounds great. All right, brother. You have a great day, Sam. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Let's go give Sam some love at financialsamurai.com. Number two, go text someone you love them. Yo, dog, let's have a barbecue. Number three, have a super delightful day. What's your favorite type of Asian food?